RA Exchange. Hey, welcome to Resonant Advisors Exchange. I'm Chloe Lula, the Exchange's senior producer. This week's episode comes to you live from Unsound Festival in Krakow, where Resident Advisor held a few workshops, talks, and panels a few weeks ago. Our in-house music critic, Kiana Mickles, spoke with the rising UK legend, Shirelle, a DJ who has become known for her fresh take on jungle, drum and bass, footwork, and juke. She's also a member of the now-defunct all-femme non-binary DJ group, Six Figure Gang, which she took part in alongside Yazis, Jesse Mitsu, Dobbs, Fautzia, and LCY. Just a few years ago, Sherelle was a local London DJ playing at a rotating cast of Juke Nights around Dalston. Today, she's headlining clubs and festivals around the world as one of the most in-demand DJs. In this conversation, Sherelle talks about the bizarre phenomenon of blowing up seemingly overnight. It all started with her first appearance on Boiler Room, she says. She woke up the next day with 20,000 more followers, and her phone literally broke. At the time, she had a job as a videographer at MixMag, and it took a few months for her to summon the strength to quit work and dive into music full-time. That moment will forever be, I will, I will always ponder how that moment even happened. It, it, very, it feels very much like a right place at the right time kind of thing. I was definitely not being booked outside of London, and I was playing at places like birthdays, uh, I think that's actually the only place I was playing. Birthdays, yeah. And yeah, I would play when they would book me and that would be it. I played alongside DJ PayPal and I, th- you know, I was like, oh, fuck, I've made it. That was it. Do you know what I mean, that's the highest point in my DJ career. So when in February it kicked off and it blew up, you know, waking up the next day and then being like, what the fuck is going on? Because I just didn't understand. It broke my phone. Had this shitty uh, Samsung. Uh, Android phone because I didn't really have money at the time and it, the notifications that were coming through from Twitter and Instagram just broke it. It was it was insane. I went from like something mad at like 1,000 followers and then ended the day on like maybe like 20,000 or something like that in just one few hours. So it, I knew immediately it would be something that would be like career changing but maybe not in the same way that it is now. On the heels of such sudden fame, Sherelle has had to think about how to make her career more sustainable, and she divulges how she's often struggled to balance touring with making music. She also touches on her new album, which was supposed to come out this year but didn't, when her laptop, hard drives, and all of her music equipment were stolen while traveling in Amsterdam. The painful experience has taught her about the art of letting go, and it's allowed her to think about the intention she wants to put into her creative process in the next draft of the album. She says that the work in progress is a super personal love letter to rave and how beautiful it can be. And she wants it to be one of the many timeless albums that lives meaningfully in the world and not just online. She also dives deep into her label, Beautiful, the contemporary drum and bass renaissance and how women, black and queer people have and are increasingly figuring into its trajectory. Sherelle is a very fun guest and she brought a lot of humor to this conversation despite some of her recent setbacks. So stay locked until the end. Thanks for tuning in. Hi everyone, thanks so much for being here. Welcome to the RA Exchange with Sherelle. My name is Kiana, I'm a music critic at Resident Advisor. And today I'm so pleased to speak with Sherelle, an incredible DJ, producer, and label owner. Sherelle has championed the jungle, footwork, and 160 BPM sound in her hometown of London and way beyond. So thanks, Cheryl, for being here. Thank you very much for having me. How are you? This isn't your first time at Unsound. I believe your debut is in 2019. Yes, uh, I did a back-to-back with Fizio. Then I did another back-to-back with RP Boo. Uh, and this third back-to-back is with VTSS. Okay, a lot of back-to-backs. A lot of back-to-backs. I don't actually know when they may want me to play alone. <laughs> but I also still am having a lot of fun, either way. What kind of role do you play in back-to-backs? Are you more dominant? Do you... <laughs> in, in back-to-backs, 
versatile. <laughs> versatile, I guess. Is that, that's, that's, yeah, usually. With I, Jordan, when I do back-to-backs, very, right. very, very versatile. Many are different BPMs, let's keep it music-led. Many BPMs um, with, yeah, I, Jordan especially, we, we can really go from probably like 135 all the way to like 174, playing an amalgamation of like various different stuff, um, which is super cool. But anyone that I usually go back-to-back -back with, I'm like obviously a, a big fan of. Um, and musically, I feel like the people I have gone back to back with, Code 9 would be an example, they're just like really musically diverse. Mm. So it just makes it a lot easier to be able to travel, you know, through different BPMs and genres and all this kind of stuff because, yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't want to go back to back with someone and it's just the same note throughout, basically. Right. Warren, well, I'm excited for the set uh, tomorrow night. And so I actually want to get right into it. When we spoke earlier, you mentioned that you wanted this conversation to be framed around the art of letting go. And when I pitched this conversation to you, I mentioned that I wanted to speak about your debut album, which was supposed to be released this year. and that's not happening anymore. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit about that and yeah, what happened? Yeah, um, so basically I was working on an album and essentially I was on a, a train uh, on the way to Amsterdam to go to my like, girlfriend's house and yeah, my bag got taken. So I had my laptop in it and my hard drives and all of the, everything I need for music. So the album is just gone or been wiped away or someone's listening to it in Antwerp somewhere, I guess. So when speaking obviously to you about it, I obviously was like extremely pissed about having to like maybe start again and like, yeah, go through the process again. But under the same breath, I was just going through a lot of shit. So actually it, the person who took my bag has kind of done me a favor. I'm, I don't hold any grudges towards the person because I think in the current age that we're living in at the moment, like there is no money about, I hope obviously that they enjoy the many uh, <laughs> electronics in the bag and are able to sell that to maybe pay for rent or whatever. If it's gone to organized crime, obviously that's a whole different story. But realistically, yeah, I had something, I lost it. And now it's like having to start again. But there's many uh, different factors within my career at the moment, which I'm having to do so. I've also recently turned 30. And because of that, it feels like a natural new beginning, obviously going into a decade uh, that I never asked to actually be in. I would like to remain in my 20s, but obviously that's not possible in life. So, yeah. Well, as someone in their 20s. Uh... Thank you very much. Congrats. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Doesn't feel like a congratulations at all, actually. It feels ever closer to death. Too, too dark? Okay, sorry. Well, anyway, so what sounds are you gravitating towards now that the album is gone? Do you feel like you're you know, creating new sounds? What, what has the creative process been like? I mean, the creative process for, say for instance, said album has not been the best at the moment on the basis of I was quite shaken from being mugged. I didn't think I would actually be mugged or, be, I don't know, it's one of, it's a strange one. It's like someone's got your like possessions and stuff and you don't really know how to like deal with it. You're trying to work out ways of like getting it back and there's like nothing you can actually do to get it specifically back. Um, my sounds with regards to like what I want the album to be hasn't changed at all though. Mm -hmm. um, I think the album that I would like to make is more of a love letter to the essence of rave as a whole, not in a kind of like nostalgic revival manner. It's actually more on the basis of like just in general how beautiful it can be. But I also want it to be like super personal. And for me as well, I really want to, I think the art of like making an album 
is a really beautiful thing that people should obviously continue to do. I think obviously releasing EPs are like super sick and stuff, but there's something about an album which is like a full-blown journey. A really good mate of mine, Lorraine James, obviously has the album of the year. And, you know, seeing her work rate and how many albums she's put out by this point, you can really see her kind of thought process behind each one. And I think that's something that I would love to emulate. For me, this section, the album is supposed to represent a new era as such. And I want to do many albums and have a specific era, era attached to it. I think given how I blew up um, and came into the scene, I've had many a moments, as, it, as you would say, but nothing for me that I could categorically say is tangible that you could like link many a different things to. And I think that's kind of reflective of the society that we're in at the moment, where you could fucking upload shit to like TikTok or Instagram, and it's just a moment. But how do those things actually like intrinsically link with like life in general? Um, and then when you do look at life in general, you know, there's not really physical, tangible things to kind of have, to be like, oh, I went from here to here. Um, pretty much most of the people in this room obviously have had most majority of their life on online. A lot of our younger pictures, I had hair once upon a time. It was horrible. And that, those are online somewhere on Facebook. You know, I don't actually have them printed out, but I've got loads of baby pictures that are printed out you know, on film. Do you know what I mean? So it's that kind of tangible element that I think I want to create with creating like the album and stuff and obviously just yeah having having a yeah showing a more personal side rather than gun fingers beanie hats berets i don't know like moments which just live and only exist online digitally basically right i i think it's interesting that you're into this kind of slow and kind of old school i'd say approach to making an album and making music um, because, like you said, your rise was so fast. So it's it's nice that you know you're taking this time to like actually reflect on what you want um, your direction as a producer to look like. I think I had no, I didn't really have time to reflect. Like to be honest with you, since like 2019 and stuff, it was a case of like playing all these amazing places, like big clubs and stuff, finding out about festivals I had no clue existed and knew, and then apparently I needed to play them because they, they meant it was, you know, bigger fees and, you know, you're going here, here and everywhere. Um, but over time, and especially 2022, I like had completed about like 94 plus shows in one year. To give you some context, it's like two weeks out of the year that I've, I had to myself free. So when you complete those many shows and then you have like the after effect of that, there wasn't that much time to think in 2022. And then you start to reflect, obviously getting closer to say for instance, 30. I don't know, I, I just, I, I, would, I would just like more. I would just like to, you know, not only just play obviously like really cool club shows or, you know, make, uh, you know, music that I, I really enjoy. It's just also to give back as well, because I just think that in the society that we live in, it's like a very, you know, you come to my show, you buy ticket, I play for you, we all go home. But there's no like experience around that, or there's no like added extra thing that allows for people to really either get to know you or to feel like they've actually spent their money's worth, you know? And especially with tickets obviously getting super uh, expensive or people just not having the money to come out. So I really do appreciate when people, I see people out at club shows or I see people at festivals. For me personally, I think it's just like, I'm, yeah, with, with, with my art, with music, with playing out, I want to enter an era in which when I'm putting on shows or making music, it feels as if there's a lot more that someone is 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 getting than just the run of a mill kind of like i don't know music i play you go home you drink you take drugs i don't know do you know what i mean right. like actually something that's tangible and actually like feels nice basically and narrative led yeah basically i don't i think actually coincidentally there's like not enough narrative led things at the moment because i think given how the scene is, it's very much like content, 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 content. 
it's ironic for me to say that because I am, was some form of content, both for myself and obviously like boiler room and stuff. So I think I want to, for me personally, move away from that, be again like my, my mate Lorraine, who has, you know, got amazing artwork and has got these beautiful four out tracks that mean something, that have beautiful music videos that go alongside them. She plays alongside an orchestra. Do you know what I mean? It's like yeah. that's giving more rather than sometimes just getting into the workout of what DJ life could pertain, which just means that you do just play out, but you don't get time to spend with people. You don't get time to talk to people. I try and talk to people after gigs, especially as well. So, uh, you know, trying to give some form of like different experience for sure. You are a very busy DJ. How do you balance making music with all these shows? Do you have to say no or do you just have to write on the road? I am in the process of working that out. I've got like a really good team now that is getting me into more of that mindset. I wasn't that before at all. It's very much a, a, a yes person per se. So even actually with the album Lost, you know, it wasn't a case of actually I realized that was I spending enough time putting into that album and actually trying to deliver something that was like really nice? Probably not, no. But now I've got like a second chance in order to, to do so. A funny story is actually, so obviously I got mugged in, in August and only a week ago, the whole of my road had a power cut and it completely fucked my computer with all of my, produ <laughs> my production bits on it and all this kind of stuff. So it's like these constant like mini bouts of like bad luck, I feel like are just sparing spurring me on more to like do stuff and I think it's like the mentality I can only really take from it other than crying in a corner is literally to like kind of power and push through because I think there's clearly some form of uh, message or mindset that I should take and it's all about being disciplined really uh, I think too so I've, I've, I need to learn a lot more about how to do that I, I yeah the process that I was taking in order to, to do the album writing wasn't probably the best for yeah. sure. So that's why it feels like a really good second start and a, and, a, and, a, and a letting go phase of like what was done before, basically. Right. Well, wishing you luck on that journey. I'm going to need it. <laughs> okay. Yes, I'm going to need it. So we mentioned the boiler room moment. Can we get into that a little? So in an interview, you said that you were getting booked something like four to eight times a year. I don't know if that was an exaggeration, but how did you go from, you know, playing a few times a year to getting booked? Oh, um, the boiler room moment was an unexpected moment just because realistically, the, to set the scene, it was myself, LCY, under the other alias um, LUCY, um, Josie Mitsu, TSVI, and Rizlatif. And we would always be probably playing at clubs with each other anywhere in the UK, in London especially. So it was a very normal, standard thing for us to be doing it. We were just gassed to have a boiler room. In my head, because of the music I was playing, I thought I was just going to get trolled to fuck for it because obviously it was fast and a bit silly and all this kind of stuff and whatever. So I kind of just approached the boiler room with, with a kind of don't give a fuck attitude kind of thing. And then, you know, I'm not gonna lie, all of us kind of forgot that the camera was on at points. So like when I was swigging down a bottle of, I think Jameson's or something like that, my mum was furious. She was like, you drink so much, what the fuck? <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I don't, I don't drink like that all the time. And that's a lie at the time, at least anyway. Um, and my sister was really into it, but the drinking thing came up as well. So like, I don't know, that, that moment will forever be, I will, I will always ponder how that moment even happened. It, it, very, it feels very much like a right place at the right time kind of thing. Because yeah, the before I was playing for like people um, like We Buy Gold or 60 Feet um, Deep, who were footwork uh, led, Duke led nights, but they were the only two nights in London. I was definitely not being booked outside of London. And I was playing at places like Birthdays. Uh, I think that's actually the only place I was playing. Birthdays, yeah. Uh, which used to be in Dalston, uh, formerly now a brew dog and is now something else, I think. And yeah, I would play when they would book me. 
and that would be it. I played alongside DJ PayPal, and I, th you know, I was like, oh, fuck, I've made it. That was it. Do you know what I mean, that's the highest point in my DJ career. So when in February it kicked off and it blew up, you know, waking up the next day and then being like, what the fuck is going on? Because I just didn't understand. It broke my phone. Had this shitty uh, Samsung uh, Android phone because I, I didn't really have money at the time. And it, the notifications that were coming through from Twitter and Instagram just broke it. It was, it was insane. I went from like something mad at like 1,000 followers and then ended the day on like maybe like 20,000 or something like that in just one few hours. So it, I knew immediately it would be something that would be like career changing, but maybe not in the same way that it is now. Because there's been a lot of thought processes that have gone into stuff that I've done to make sure that it's like sustainable and to make sure that obviously I'm like f constantly trying to find ways of pushing the scene in a really nice organic way without it kind of being bastardized in, in, in some sort of sense. So, yeah, it's, it, it will forever be a strange time and it probably was a test of mental health also because it's one, it's felt very scary. There's nothing more scary than going on your own Twitter and seeing a bunch of big DJs argue about you when <laughs> they're talking about a spin back moment and like what that means and everyone kind of also adding further context to it, whether it be like feminism and all this kind of stuff and whatever. So it was a lot, but it was, it's been a vibe now because obviously it's about nearly five years now, It'll be five years next year. So yeah. At the time was your goal to be a professional DJ that was getting booked as much as you're getting booked now was there like an added layer of stress of like oh now I have to like actually do the DJ thing now well I was just happy I had just got like a permanent job after interning at Mixmag for fucking time for very little pet for let very little pennies right so I, they won't mind me saying this every intern apparently goes through it but Literally, I just got a full-time job doing video stuff. So if anyone watches like labs, Mixmag labs from like a very specific era, you'll see me pop up in a beanie hat, filming, literally being behind a camera and stuff. I'm in like DJ Rum's one quite often, actually sorting out like the front camera. And I was happy at that job. I didn't leave for like six months after. Like I, I was actually quite set. It actually wasn't until I received a package from Virgil Abloh, and then also played Concrete France, which they don't have anymore, that I was like, I could probably do this full time if I actually quit my job. And I was petrified, but I just did it. Like, I don't know, that box came into Mixmag and everyone was just like, what the fuck? And I was like, even I was like, the, how, what? Do you know what I mean? So it's, it's a case of like, I don't know, in that moment, like realizing worth, like I know, I knew at that job I was uh, appreciated, but I also had a chance then to do my own thing and be my own boss. Um, and I also ran out of holiday quite quickly actually too. So yeah, it was, it was nice to, to be able, uh, yeah, I had no choice almost. I was like, do you know what, fuck it, I'm gonna do it and see what happens basically. And luckily it, it worked out essentially. Right, do you think there was also maybe a craving for more of your style in the London scene? Because I think it's interesting that you're mentioning that there were two juke nights. Um, and I think your story generally is interesting considering the history of the UK and Chicago footwork having a very strong relationship. You know, it was the English label Planet Mew that was responsible for bringing footwork to an overseas audience in the UK. And then you have as like Addison Groove, cementing it further over there. So yeah, I'm, I guess I'm wondering what people in the London scene thought of your focus, you know, championing footwork there. It's quite interesting. I had like people who maybe didn't know about the genre be like, why the fuck are you doing that genre? Like they didn't understand or get it. Uh -huh. And I had a lot of like naysayers basically that kind of did piss me off when I was doing it and playing it because I was like, I love it. I don't need to play something that's popular in order to be a big, it just, it just didn't make sense. So they pissed me off a lot. Um, but London in general is just a very eclectic place. Like it, we are not shy from harsher sounds. Um, 
people obviously, you know, like fractures, the, the OM units and stuff, um, have make, allowed for a lot of different elements to it being turbo as well. Um, and I think that I'm quite influenced by Fracture Sound. Obviously, he's from London and obviously on units, uh, Bristol, but I'm influenced a lot by their sounds. Obviously, influenced a lot by like Fixate, you know? And with these various different people and their sounds and how they do it, there was there's these, these tracks, the tracks that they make are like no other. Atoro is a prime example of this, do you know what I mean? And even people now that we've had on Hoover Sound, uh, like hieroglyphics and Sinistar and like Samurai Breaks and stuff. These are all people who have been championing this sound for a long time before I blew up. There was always a, just a bubbling thing, I think, in and around Europe. And it's just finally caught up that now we're in a stage where we can say that we can listen to Jungle on like mainstream like mm -hmm. radio and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, London in general, net, they could never be surprised by someone randomly playing footwork. I would be sometimes playing at four quarters in Peckham uh, and playing like a footwork night because if they didn't do it in East London, they always did it in South. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, I'm, I'm, and that's what makes me really happy to be from London as well. That we always seem to have just a, a wider focus. UK in general, to be fair, a wider focus on music, and nothing really ever scares us when it comes to bass stuff, especially. Word. So, in the same year that you you know, had the boiler room moment, you also started to assemble Six Figure Gang. And um, if I remember correctly, that was a collective that like pretty much everyone was championing a faster sound. And this was an all femme, non-binary collective that was really important at the time and still is. I think the legacy is really essential. Can you talk a little bit about how you guys got assembled and what the early stages of Six Figure Gang were like? Um, I would say that it was probably, it's, it's through everyone knowing each other quite well. Um, I feel like when it came down to, say for instance, uh, at the time myself and LCY were going out, so that was one entity. Um, LCY though knew Jossie and Fuzia and Yazus and you know Dobbs but I was really close to Dobbs through like represent and it was just all this kind of crossing of like uh, friendships and stuff so we had a natural kind of synergy for like the music that we were like really interested in and then uh, basically LCY had opportunity to do a rinse show on their own but then they chose to make it uh, six figure gang led so then we had our residency on there for a while um, and then we just toured around basically like toured around with boiler room uh, had like a sold out show in like Brixton and stuff and I think for us the beauty was that we could go from like something mad from like 110 probably playing like dance all the way to ending it on like Gabba this doesn't sound strange to people at the moment given the era that we're in now but at the time it was we were just we were just on it and I think we could go from any different genre and spin anyone out. I would still categorically say that to this, to this day. If we were, you know, doing and touring and actually was still like working together as six figure, we would, the clashes would be mad and it would be embarrassing for everyone just because of how much musical knowledge we had and stuff. And I think obviously also everyone's disciplines with regards to their own productions or their own DJ style. And I think the main thing, obviously when talking to you on the phone and like, you know, talking about various different things. I think the main thing that struck me a lot with this was about legacy and about like actually like the element of like writing down a lot of like different things that you've done. Because again, because we live in such a like digital age, everything just lives on like Instagram or TikTok and all this kind of stuff. But then imagine if that just got deleted. So like, what do you have left or to reference to? Like, are, are we taking enough pictures and writing down like certain moments of like how we felt at the time? can we look at old interviews and are they physical for forms of interviews and stuff? This is like, I don't know, I just think back to like, obviously, Jungle and like how many documentaries there are. You can find like Shy FX talking about how he's made like original Nutter and where it came from and stuff. And like seeing him perform this out for the, like for the first time, you know, it's, these, these are things I think like, I would hate for the work, the 
in the short amount of time that we did as like a collective to be forgotten about because I can see that it's influenced other people to do the same. We are not the only, uh, you know, uh, female non-binary group that has got together and decided to, to clash people left, right and centre. But it would be a shame to not think about actually what we were playing and what we were doing at the time and like actually what we represented too. And the fact that we could take that internationally, we were going to. Um, and I think, yeah, that I, the, the art of like looking back on like certain things is like a really beautiful thing. But again, to say about that, like the art of letting go is like the element obviously of the group not being uh, together anymore, which is obviously like super sad just because of like personal differences. But it is good to look and reflect on all the good things that we did do. And also acknowledge as well that everyone within that group is obviously so super talented that everyone is gonna be doing bad bitch shit anyway. Do you know what I mean? It's just, yeah, for me, I'm, I'm conscious of in this new era of like album music and thinking about stuff in a more of a, a, a reflective way to really think about ways of talking about this a little bit more and like sharing thoughts on it and actually having some form of like tangible reflection or opinion on it basically. Right, and I think aside from all of your skills as DJs, I think Six Figure Gang was important at the time because this was like 2019, 2020. This is when people were really talking about the ways that race and gendered identities play a role um, in your experience at the club. And you guys were very vocal about your own experiences. And, we were too vocal. Yeah, oh my like, God, so confident. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, literally. Yeah, and uplifting yeah. other people with similar identities. Yeah, of so course. I think, yeah, that's important. We, the group well. majority was, was majority like black. Uh, and, you know, we, we just did our thing. And I think, obviously, it's a shame that it won't come back, but I hope it inspires people to do their own thing in their own collectives and stuff and just, like, join up collectively as groups because I think that's, like, super important. You can't really always achieve things just on your Larry. Like, I think actually, like, being with each other and... Uh, being like, we can do this. Actually, we're gonna fuck it. Just doesn't doesn't matter what happens. Like, we we were really like, we didn't give a fuck. And I'm glad that I feel like for everyone's individual careers, that's like carried forth and carried on. So, yeah, it's 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 nice to reflect on it in a in a nicer manner. Uh, and I hope that yeah, it, it will influence people to, and it, it still does at least anyway, influence people to do like other things basically because yeah everyone is like so individually talented that it's yeah it, it was a moment as it such. was a moment and when i think about six figure gang i think about the importance of strength in numbers because again talking about legacy collectives are really important for the historical archive because it's so easy to erase a single person from history we've seen it happen time and time again but it's a little bit more difficult when there are more people involved. When we were speaking on the phone, you were talking about the Belleville Free. Yes. Did you find out the fourth member? Babes. Eddie Folks. Yes. Yes. That's like a prime example of basically everything you're saying. Right, yeah. right. Because yeah, I think like that's, that's what's really important here is that I think all, all of us in that group have enough profile that that wouldn't happen. But imagine if it, didn't, that would be a bit of a shit thing to obviously experience, basically. Right. Speaking um, of, you know, your influence, I, I wonder what you make of this drum and bass revival that we're in right now with artists like Neo Archives and Pink Panthers, both black women, at kind of the face of drum and bass in a pretty mainstream way. Yeah, I'm wondering what you make of that. Is that something you envisioned when you were growing up listening to this music? Work. That's, that's basically like my, my, my two cents on that. I think about time, considering obviously our, we got like chemistry and storm. Basically within the fold of like 
on a historical sense, it's, yeah, that, that they did so much. And we've got, let's like, say, for instance, DJ Flight as well, who's, who was in amongst that. I think that here's the thing. When with specific things of revival and specific scenes, maybe like jungle and drum and bass, seemingly coming back, I don't, that the wording I don't quite agree with because I feel like it's never gone anywhere. It's just people haven't taken notice. In an age that we live in now, which is actually quite similar to when the, when the scene first started, this is why people are listening to it, because they need to fucking get out all that bad energy that we're experiencing from politicians and all the shit that we have to go through every single day. And they're after something faster. Even actually people's music uh, choices changed a lot over, over COVID. So I feel like for me, yeah, these scenes never went anywhere. And I think it's a beautiful thing to see someone like Pink Panthers, who I think is a lot more than just say for instance, having elements of like drum and bass and actually the same thing with Nia as well, because in certain tunes of her, she's got more of an indie uh, influence. Mm. I'm glad that these two are leading it in, or sorry, at least leading the element of being genreless actually into a new uh, stratosphere. It actually only really makes like, has, as, as I would see them as contemporaries, like easier for say for instance myself or like a Tim or a Coco or a Duard or a Sully to push through like sounds because then at least then if someone is taking the helm in a, in a mainstream realm, then with regards to the underground, it's only easier for all, all of us to enter into spaces in which they've already been introduced to it through someone uh, with, with how and how their sonics are. Then now, now they're gonna get introduced to the sonics of, of yeah, like I said, a Tim, a Sully, a Coco, um, a, a Duard, and yeah, it, that, that makes a scene so much more interesting, so much more diverse. There's also a thing of, I think that jungle, it, a lot of the people that I've mentioned with, like, with regards to like Tim Reaper and stuff, Sully, Coco, Bryce, um, Duard, they're not trying to recreate something because it's gone. You can't recreate the essence of uh, Burial um, by Jumping Jack Frost and stuff. Like it's a case of like, they're trying to create some, they're doing something new. They're pushing it a lot more forward. And there's even elements of certain sounds that even lean into techno and can have like elements of like 4-4 and stuff. So I think the general, my general thing regarding what do I think of uh, Neo Archives and Pink Panthers and drum and bass, I think it's amazing. But I see them as genreless because I think that they're pushing it into a stratosphere in which only allows for the actual general ecosystem that we live in within the underground to be to go further and to go to places in which potentially that, that music may not travel. And I think that's a really good thing. And it also should be, you know, led in, in that way, because, you know, in the, in the past, it wasn't so much uh, at all. Right. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to get into, I guess, like the history of jungles reception. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, because I think it's interesting that, of course, we're having you know, this moment where these black women are at the forefront of drum and bass, but it obviously wasn't always that way. And I think Maybe you've had some experience of people not feeling like you should be in the position you are or like representing the genre. Like for example, I'm thinking about like the deck mental incident. So yeah, I, I guess what I'm I'm getting at is how do you how do you navigate this that? kind yeah. of stuff? I think to be honest with you, like in in general, with a lot of different scenes, and actually, as also with regards to like culture, there is actually a genuine thing of like when cultures like move forward or something is like created. Sometimes actually, like men are usually seen at like the forefront of things, and then when it comes down to the subculture element, that's when sometimes the like women do get like introduced to stuff, or they get added on a lot later rather than actually sometimes being credited for the beginnings and stuff. Hence why someone like Chemistry and Storm is so amazing in terms of like, they actually were receiving a lot of credit. They even have a large backstory into how Goldie became Goldie. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, 
for me, I feel that the history of jungle is a, is a beautiful thing if you were to point it down to who were the people making it, what type of people they, they were making it. I relate to them a lot because I am black and I am a working class. With regards to, say, for instance, the women, I really only have Kemi to look to, or I really only have DJ Flight to look to, and obviously countless other names uh, within the UK, US, and all this kind of stuff. I reconcile quite well with the element of maybe not feeling, how do I, how do I put this? In the general dance music scene, obviously, the, the, the scene could be better and, and more diverse. Mm -hmm. We have a very diverse music scene as a whole, but in terms of the people that are at the top or get the top gigs, get the, the, the accelerated wages as such, it isn't going to be someone like myself unless I've been in the game for literally 60 plus years and then I'm able to like, retrieve that per se. I reconcile quite well with it because I know that realistically I'm here for a long time and I plan to stay and keep working on the, the, the forms of legacy to grow into that stage of being able to help others with it. Hence why I have like Beautiful, um, which is like an initiative that I have which helps like black and queer uh, people are like, and we've got like a free studio space, space even, which people can use for free and go and produce music, providing they just book in like a day in advance. There's, n there's, no, there's nothing to it. Do you know what I mean? So I reconcile with it quite well because I think to myself, rather than cussing people on Twitter about craft work and the symbiotic fucking nature of black people, electronic music versus dance music, all this kind of shit, I'm just going to create beautiful instead because I can't be asked to cuss people on Twitter. I could spend hours on that place because it's not even just a music thing that I'm fucking pissed off with there. It's like maybe other elements of homophobia, transphobia, all this kind of stuff. So I reconcile with it quite well of just trying to keep my head down and try and like do like a lot of good things. Obviously with, with management, there's a, a lot going on. <laughs> so they have to suffer. <laughs> so they have to suffer with all of the stuff that I like doing and like helping people with, but it's worth it. If it means that, you know, people look back and go, oh shit, she's actually done a lot and this has done this and da da da, because that's what, that's where, that's where my head is at. And I think I just come from a really old school perspective of like, I look at people that I'm like really influenced by and they've just done bare shit, basically. And that's like really cool. So, yeah. I, yeah, I really wanted to talk about Beautiful because it's a label as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And really enjoyed the first compilation. It your other label that you co-found um with um Nina is um very dramatic and like Oh yeah, we we love yeah, serving drama. drama. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> High drama. Yeah. But there are some tracks on Beautiful that are kind of more like, you know, home listening tracks or a bit more down tempo, maybe you'd use it in an opening set. I'm wondering, yeah, sonically, what direction you're looking to go in. Was the intention to be a bit more? Yeah, the, the intention with Beautiful, and obviously we haven't done a compilation in a while, but like the intention with it is just to show how expansive black and queer music can be. That's basically it. I don't want people to be boxed in into, you know, black and queer people making trap music, hip hop music, drill music, like, because babes, really. Like, there's like so many different sounds that, um, say for instance, black and queer people can be a part of and be, do. I, when I was at school in fucking, went to Woodford High School in, in Woodford Green, and my friends, my, my black friends would literally be like, why are you listening to this uns uns music? Do you know how this killed me? It killed me because it was like, but, what do you mean? It's like, and it, obviously they would refer to it more, you know, being white people's music and stuff. And like, they actually had a point at the time because realistically, without me knowing the history further, then what do I see? David Guetta, just like, do you know what I mean? That's, that's the piece, it's like David Guetta, Freddie Legrand, all this kind of stuff, like bangers, obviously, at that time. Um, sorry, David Guetta and Freddie Legrand. Um, but, yeah, if you see that on TV and those are the people that you can only reference to, it's like, of course you see it that way. But as I grew older and stuff, I just wanted, I don't know, I just, I see, I see so much in, or so much potential in 
the view of what black music and queer music can be. And we're known for so much more than, than what people really kind of go for. It's like queer people, disco, house. And of course, these are like the, the four foundings of, say for instance, you know, our culture. And the same thing with, uh, you know, black music and, you know, hip hop, breaks. Like it needs to be, can be more. And I want for, with Beautiful, not only from the studio, not only from the music side of things or even exhibition bits, because obviously at the moment working on a new exhibition, I want people to see more of what black and queer people can do. Tell me about the exhibition. I don't know if I can. Oh. I don't, I don't think I can. I don't think, yeah, I'm being told no. But I basically, <laughs> no, only because of the fact that it's like, I'm trying to do like a really big exhibition basically with the, this group called Finn Studio, who are amazing, um, Kobe and Hugo. Um, Kobe is one of the, like, he's like the first um, curator at like, the Saatchi Gallery and he, he, first black curator, I should say. And we work really well with each other in the sense of we just want to do really cool shit. So all I can tell you is that we've got a bunch of installations and we were taking over a really big space in London, hopefully, fingers crossed. But we're working on that now. And again, that's to further push the, the, the legacy format and idea of people to come down and actually have tangible art to like look to and stuff like that and whatever. I don't know, I just... DJing is like super fucking fun. It's like I love interacting with people, dancing and getting down with people, having tequila and soda, and sometimes occasionally champagne. But if it was just that all the time, might not necessarily be too fun. Only because it, in those parts, it can sometimes feel a little bit surface. I hope that like, makes sense. Because obviously, naturally, you want to get down, drink with your friends. Do you know what I mean? Like You want to have a really good time, but I just feel like I could always be doing more in that sense. Or doing something nice. It's giving 30. It's giving, oh. Do you know what? I am already giving 30 because before coming out, me and my girlfriend were doing stretching, right? No, this is like good stretching, not anything sexual, right? I can't stretch for shit. So I feel like when you said that, I immediately went to that place where I was like, I can't even straighten my legs. Can't even cross my legs. So thank you. If I've, I've been saying to my friends, don't say like happy 30th birthday, otherwise I'll block them. And I did. <laughs> I, blocked, I blocked two of my mates for 24 hours for saying happy 30th birthday. Wow. I'm not 30, I'm just, I'm just Sherelle. How about that? So I, I want to go back to, you know, how we started. Yes. On, you know, the art of letting go. And I'm wondering if you have any advice for any artist who is, you know, going through similar um, transitory periods and working on, you know, letting go and starting fresh because I feel like it is very easy to just go, you know, autopilot mode when you're catching flights. I'm wondering if you have any, any thoughts on that. I think the main thing for me is it's, it's consistency. It's, a, it's actual consistency with stuff because I actually was very consistent prior to the boiler rooms anyway. I had a represent show, represent radio show actually, which is based in South London. And I was uh, championing footwork and jungle on there for, for, for a while. So there's like a bunch, if you go on my like, SoundCloud, there's a bunch of like old mixes from like Fracture and Fixate and like other people now who have like risen, uh, such as like Breaker and stuff and Atoa, like, I really was putting in the work to really get these guest, guest mixes and stuff. And like, I just was trying to be as consistent as possible. And I think that in itself, and also just the general belief that, yeah, maybe, maybe one day actually it's gonna happen and it'll be sick. Like, cause I really wasn't anticipating that the boiler room to be the way it did, but I'm glad that I was like, at least musically in a DJ form, ready to go and tour and take the music around like different parts of the UK. And then obviously eventually like internationally as well. Um, on a side note, and obviously just like a, a kind of auntie, mother, now I'm 30, a kind of mindset, it's like, just back up your shit. Oh my God, what the fuck? <laughs> like, yeah, like I, I really just didn't think about that. I, I know that sounds really thick, but I, I am a little bit thick in that sense. I didn't back up, I did, really didn't back up that much. And I think it's a case of like, this is, that, that, this is what I mean about like the digital age that we live in. It's like, I've obviously got hard drives and stuff. 
and I put stuff on there. And then, yes, I could put shit in, like, the cloud has such. But again, that physicality, an actual tangible thing to, like, actually back something up. I have, you know, technically in this age, I have to back it up twice, the cloud, and a hard drive, and maybe another hard drive. Do you know what I mean? I, I would just say, like, be... Go, just go home and back, back everything up. <laughs> and just really think, have I, have I backed everything up? Do I need to buy something else? And if you, don't worry if you can't afford it just yet, but just back it up. Like, change your internet if you can. Cheaper provider. Hopefully it's fiber optic. Back it up. I think, I think that's basically it. Um, consistency, confidence in your own self, uh, being at one with your age, and please back everything up that you own. Please, please believe in the physicality of things. Yeah, I, I guess. I hope that answers your question. That was beautiful. <laughs> Thanks. Okay, thank you so much, Sherelle. Yeah, no this was probably the silliest yeah, interview very silly. I've done in a very long time. Yeah, thank Thanks you. so much, everyone. Thanks for listening to this RA Exchange with Sherelle. Many thanks to Kiana Mickles for moderating and to Michelle, Matt, and the team at Unsound for hosting this talk. The track playing in the outro of this episode is Jungle Techna, which came out on her Fabric Presents mixtape from 2021. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the RA Exchange and listen to our full archive of conversations on ra.co or on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. Until next time, take care.